Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a little joke for you. So, what's green and sings? Uh, I don't know. Elvis Parsley. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. One hour of food, culture, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Daryl Bullock, author of a new book about the world's worst opera singer. <laughs> He'll tell us about it later. Yes. And we'll speak with comedian Jim Gaffigan about his cleverly titled TV show, The Jim Gaffigan Show. Genius. Also coming up, author Emma Klein talks about the cult of her first hit novel. Acclaimed Scottish composer Anna Meredith DJs your next dinner party slash obstacle course. And we learn about the man after whom the Rubik's Cube is named. Hint, his name isn't Cube. Mm. But first, as at any party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. A federal appeals court has struck down part of Texas's voter ID law. In Turkey, some 6,000 people are under arrest after a failed coup attempt. State delegations cast their ballots for president of the Republican National Convention. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Rebecca Greenfield. She is a reporter for Bloomberg News, and she is co-host of Game Plan, a new podcast about people's lives at work. Rebecca, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I'm going to be talking about this woman whose name was used by Google Docs, and it ruined her life. Wow. How did Google Docs use her name? So her name was used in the templates for resumes and things like that, outlines. Oh, right. So when you go into Google Docs, it brings up a template, and there's kind of a, a placeholder name. Exactly. And most companies use really generic names like John Smith or... Apple uses Johnny Appleseed, I think. But... Yeah, I was going to ask, is her name John Smith? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would make it a really uninteresting story. <laughs> okay. Well, what is her name? Her name is Casey Baumer. Casey Baumer isn't that crazy a name. Isn't there more than one Casey Baumer out there that has this problem? There's probably more than one Casey Baumer who had their life ruined, but this was just <laughs> the one that Business Insider found. All right. An example. And at first it was amusing. People would come up to her and tell her they saw her name in their Google, and then it got out of control. Strangers started messaging her. For example, there was one woman who said that she found this woman's name all over her husband's Google Docs. Oh. <laughs> she thought they were having an affair? Right. If my husband had the resume of a stranger <laughs> in his Google Docs, I would let him leave me for that person because obviously he really likes them if he's editing the resume. <laughs> or maybe it's a work relationship. <laughs> oh. Yeah. She's kind of leapt to conclusions. What else? What's the craziest thing? I mean, some people thought that they were hacked by her, oh. that she would go through the pain of hacking their Google Docs and using all of her documents in their Google Docs, I guess. There should be a support group for people like Jane Doe, Ronald McDonald, you know, people with these <laughs> names. There should be a place for them to go. But those names yeah. are so generic, and we all know their fake yeah. names. Yeah, so why did Google pick this name? Well, they were trying to be quirky, much like their culture. But this uh, isn't really a quirky name, so I'm not, I don't understand. It must have come from somewhere. You don't just think the tech mm. bros are a little bit boring? They're like, you know what's a creative name? <laughs> Casey. Deep. Uh, well, while they're working on that, we should turn to cocktails. So, Rebecca Greenfield, thanks for the small talk. Thanks for having me. Let's have a drink. <laughs> Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then challenge a bartender to capture its essence in cocktail form. It's like history is a swimming pool, but instead of chlorine, it's disinfected with booze. That seems like a terrible idea. It's worth trying. First, the history part. This month marks the 72nd birthday of a guy who invented an object that infuriated millions. In which they just had to own. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. One of the most popular toys in the free world was born in the unfree world. It was 1974, 
And in the Soviet bloc country of Hungary, a design professor named Erno Rubik, barely 30 and still living with his parents, made himself a little wooden gizmo, a cube made up of a bunch of little cubes. Some say Rubik wanted to use it to demonstrate spatial relationships to his students. Others say he just wanted to see if he could make all the cubes move around without the whole thing falling apart. Either way, he quickly realized if you made each side a different color and then scrambled it up, it made for a tricky little puzzle. Like, really tricky. It took him a month to solve the thing. But people loved it, despite the difficulty, according to Rubik, because it was more of a tactile work of art than a puzzle. Soon, he was selling a mass-produced plastic version all over Hungary. He called it Buvos Kochka, the magic cube. Alas, to sell the cube outside the Iron Curtain required real magic. The Soviet Union tightly controlled exports. So Rubik's mathematician pals helped spread the word by bringing cubes along to conferences abroad. And after a Hungarian expat demonstrated one at a German toy fair, Ideal Toy Company signed on to distribute the cube in the West, on one condition, that they give it a better name. Rubik's Cube went on to become the best-selling puzzle game in the world. Possibly the best-selling toy, period. And it gave rise to a new sport, speed cubing. Last year, the puzzle it took Rubik a month to solve was completed by one Jakub Kipa in under 21 seconds using his feet. So that was the history lesson. Now for the drink to go along with it. I'm on the line with Zoltan Naj. He is the owner and bar manager of Boutique in Budapest, Hungary, the birthplace of Erno Rubik. Zoltan, welcome. Let me just specify it, Erno Rubik, to be more precise with the name of the gentleman. And Rubik. Okay, so the O is silent. Hungarian is very different than any other languages around, so okay. it's fine. Your pronunciation was great. <laughs> Thanks, Zoltan. So you heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? Well, the name of the drink is called Ruby Q. R-U-B-Y-Q. Ruby Q. Okay. This is very cute. Yeah. <laughs> it used the name Ruby because the color is kind of ruby. And Q is for the cube, Ruby Q. But if you pronounce it all together, it's like Ruby Q. All right. So uh, how do you make this drink? The drink itself has a base spirit, a national Hungarian drink called Unicum. Okay, so the base spirit is a drink called Unicum. Called Unicum. Unicum is a bitter liqueur, and it's quite old. It's come from 1795. And so Unicum means it's... It's unique. Unicum in Hungarian is equivalent to unique. Uh, my grandfather's generation drinks every single day a shot of Unicum, and they believe that that actually cures many stomach aches. I see. I see. He's like, it's unique because it got me drunk and healthy. <laughs> Go ahead. So this is the base of your drink is the Unicum. And then what happens after that? The next thing is a uh, three-quarter of an ounce of uh, sour cherry. Sounds good. Half half an ounce of cinnamon syrup. Cinnamon syrup, okay. Half an ounce of precious cheese lemon juice and about two and a half ounces of cranberry juice. And then this fills up the glass and it looks like a ruby color. Yep. If you shake it, obviously it would turn ruby. It comes up quite good. So the Rubik's Cube became the most popular toy in the world. Zoltan, I hope this becomes the most popular drink in the world ever. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, but I somehow doubt the whole thing. <laughs> 
Zoltan Naj from Boutique in Budapest, Hungary. Enrico, true story. Okay. I once went to a Halloween party at a bar in Budapest, yeah. and I kind of stole one of their decorations, which was this fake turkey foot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and a few weeks later, I noticed my jacket smelled funny. Oh, no. Turns out it wasn't a fake turkey foot. Oh, <laughs> my word. Different health codes there at the time, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, folks, our cocktail recipes are foot free and they're all at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the soundtrack in which a great musician DJs your dinner party. And today, our guest is Scottish composer Anna Meredith. Her background's in classical music, but she's acclaimed for her jubilant synth pop. The Guardian says her work, quote, conjures images of a jetpack through the northern lights. I love that. Mm. And his latest album, Varmints, just won Scotland's Album of the Year Award. Here she is with the playlist. Hi, I'm Anna Meredith. I've chosen some music that for me would really make the perfect evening. So here's my dinner party soundtrack. The first track at my dinner party would be Philip Glass's Mad Rush and this very special version of it played by the organist, James McVinney. What's amazing about this Philip Glass track is the sense of structure, I think. It feels to me like you kind of walk into different rooms and you start off with this beautiful, peaceful chords that move back and forth, and then suddenly... floor drops out from underneath you and you're in a completely different space, everything's moving twice as fast, you have these little glitching little patterns running backwards and forwards. What I really like about this track is you have to accept that you can't predict the structure. There's not signs that tell you we're building up here or we're reducing here or we're slowing down. He basically is in the driving seat and you've just got to go along for the ride. If you're anything like me and my friends, you're probably running late. And so you've probably burst into this party. And what's nice about this bit of music is it will hopefully chime in with relaxing you, but also making you in your frantic rush feel right at home. My second song is called Sonnet, and it's written by my friend, a composer called Emily Hall. sung here by a folk singer called Olivia Cheney, who has just the most amazing voice. To answer no one's call. Have a listen out for very sparse bits of cello, some very gentle electronics, and also the amazing sound of the musical saw, which you hear this kind of very high, almost whining texture in the background. And I feel There's nothing I like more than hanging out with friends, um, especially my musician friends. We all really inspire each other. Emily's always been a kind of amazing inspiration to me in knowing where to strip things back and how to leave the, the most beautiful bones of a piece of music behind, which just speak and have such power almost because they are so brave and so exposed. You feel the tickle touch of future eyes. So at some point in my party, I would love to play Go West's We Close Our Eyes. 
So this track is from the mid 80s um, and it has brilliant 80s beats, amazing 80s synths, but for me it evokes a very, very particular purpose. I teach a bunch of teenage composers and at some point during the course everyone's been working really hard and I think everyone needs a bit of light relief so I send them all out of the room and I basically spend a whole day making this really fiendish obstacle course, the things you've got to hop over, climb under, bob for apples, chuck stuff in the bin, they have to get blindfolded and I like to blare, we close our eyes at them as they sprint about. We close our And I think there's a bit of a big kid kind of hiding in all of us. So at the end of this dinner party, I think I'd like to fling open a surprise door and reveal a, a giant obstacle course that I've set up below everyone's minds. What's more fun than an obstacle course? Nothing. <laughs> So after my obstacle course, I think everyone's going to be a bit wired and maybe up for a bit of a dance. I'd like to play my track, Scrimshaw. When I play this track live, I'm doing it with my band and this track just builds and builds. It starts with just the cellos and the synths and then more and more instruments come in and by the end, we always call that moment the Carnivale, which isn't really anything. It's just somehow become the name of that section. We all bellow, Carnivale! A dinner party soundtrack from Anna Meredith. Her new album, Varmints, was just named Scotland's Album of the Year, and she's touring the UK now. All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, Jim Gavigan is not only a comedian, he's an expert on child-rearing and food. Kids eat essentially the equivalent of bar food. That and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, Emma Klein, author of the summer's literary bestseller, The Girls, talks about the cult around cults. And in a few minutes, writer Nicole Dennis-Ben finds trouble in paradise. Plus, we learn about Florence Foster Jenkins, the worst opera singer in the world. No, it's not Gilbert Gottfried in the shower. Oh, what? Uh, but first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. That's right. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is Jim Gaffigan. Over the last 20 years, he's become one of America's most-watched stand-up comics, with self-deprecating observations about raising five kids with his wife, and especially about his love of food... In fact, a couple of years back, he published the best-selling book called Food, A Love Story. His TV land sitcom, The Jim Gaffigan Show, which he writes and produces with his wife, Jeannie, is now in the midst of its second season. It follows a guy named Jim Gaffigan, who has a wife and five kids, Weird. as he tries to be a decent Catholic hmm. while making his way as a comic in New York City. I feel like 
I've heard that story somewhere. And Jim, it's an honor to have you on our show. It is an honor to be here. I'm excited. I'm glad. We can hear it in your voice. That's the etiquette that you're supposed to be excited. <laughs> I guess, I guess <laughs> Pretend so. Pretend to be. I'm Midwestern. I feel like Midwesterners, we have like an advantage in the etiquette. How's that? Thing. I don't know. There's a certain civility that, that masks our anger. Yeah, but it's just a mask <laughs> though, isn't it? Like we all, we all know you're it's... seething piles of evil. But we're polite about it. <laughs> That's the premise yeah. of Fargo is like no, these true. people are nut jobs, <laughs> but they're going to talk about it politely. They'll put you in the wood chipper, but they'll be kind. Yeah. Well, talking about that duality, um, we do need to start with the obvious question. To yeah. what extent is the Jim Gaffigan on the show the Jim Gaffigan we're speaking to right now? Oh, well, you know, Jim Gaffigan, real life, not the brightest guy. Jim Gaffigan, <laughs> who does stand up. Remove a couple IQ points. Gotcha. Jim Gaffigan television show. Remove a couple more IQ points. <laughs> I see. It's very. It's gradations of dumb. So how did that character evolve, though? Why Why did you choose to devolve your intellect for the stage and for TV? It's uh, It's interesting. I I love playing a smart dumb person. Like I think Ellen DeGeneres does it very well too. Oh, right. It's just. It's funny. You know, somebody that's very confident. That is clueless. I mean, you see that at every water park is filled with a lot of people with a lot of confidence that should not have confidence. And so it's, I think we identify because we all walk around with this illusion that we're a little bit better than we are, but yeah, we uh, get a glimpse in the mirror and we realize the reality. Yeah, I know Steve Martin's act was basically about that. I'm the best comedian in the world when what he's doing is actually silly and stupid. Right. So is it hard to keep track of these Jim Gaffigans? Like As, as you mentioned, you do write the show with your wife and there's this character you're creating together and then, you know, you actually are raising five children. Uh, I, For me personally, it definitely does bleed into my personal life. <laughs> Our season finale has to do uh, I play my my dad and my son plays me and my dad is a much more gruff, impatient kind of pre-Phil Donahue man. (laughs) I think that kind of bled into my everyday life after it for a couple weeks. So so? I think... Well, I just think there's a there's an impatience that I witnessed with my dad and kind of a, a male entitlement that I kind of adopted a little bit of it. Uh-huh. And now I... You know, I'm married to a strong woman, so she <laughs> she, she beat it out of me. <laughs> People must, I mean, you're both represented on the show and you write it together. They must assume yeah. that you're the couple on the screen. How does that play out in real life? Well, it's pretty fascinating. You know, my wife is actually very different. I mean, I'm different from my television character, but my wife is very different. That was Some of that was intentional from just kind of setting up a story or characters. Like if Jim is this slovenly kind of lazy guy... Yeah. We couldn't have the the wife or mom be anything but resilient because we didn't want people to watch the show and go, these children are in trouble. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they yeah, have yeah. no guiding light. <laughs> right. So it's – I think my wife's resilient but I think in much more of a uh, practical way whereas Ashley kind of portrays a brightness that when we were casting the show – we were at a network test, and I said, look, Ashley Williams could come at Jim with a chainsaw, and the viewer would be like, that's adorable. <laughs> and that was intentional. Yeah. All right. Maybe you can uh, bring that attitude to our listeners' etiquette questions. Are you ready for these? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Here's something from Chris Dapps via Instagram. And Chris Dapps writes, what's the protocol around eating food you've served to kids? How many times do you have to offer it to them and have it rejected before you can claim it? Or should you claim it? Oh, that's an interesting scenario. Yes. Well, that's why most parents 
uh, are fat because, <laughs> you know, it's like any adult that gives a meal to some kid who for some random reason doesn't eat it. You sit there and you feel like, well, maybe I should eat it. And also kids eat essentially the equivalent of bar food. So the food that you would eat at two in the morning. Chicken tenders. After you've been drinking for six hours is what kids will have for lunch. Yeah. And that's also, I mean, kids, they'll eat like one chicken tender or they'll they'll say like, I want pancakes and eggs. And there's an exhaustion. So you're like, all right, fine, just get the pancakes and eggs. And then they're just like drinking orange juice for breakfast. So you'll, you'll look at the pancakes and eggs, which if you're a response adult, you're like, I'm not going to eat both of these. But you end up eating both of them. Yeah. yeah. Is it under the guise of, you know, we don't want this to go to waste, being a good example for your children about food waste? Or is it just... I think it's just food in front of you. And, <laughs> and you, you know, there's something like when you're... When I was single and I, you know, I wouldn't have like pancakes in my apartment. Yeah. <laughs> but when you have children... The yeah. food is in front of you, and you've paid for it. But what's the advice here then? Should we should we avoid doing that to ourselves, or it's just give up? I think I think you're going to take the kids' food <laughs> like, anyway, yeah, unless so they touched it, because children are filthy. <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah. All I right. think just take the food. All right, Chris Dabbs. eat the food. Good luck. Enjoy your new weight. This next yeah. question comes from Candice from Raleigh, North Carolina. And Candace writes, when someone chooses to remotely lock or unlock their car, just as you happen to be walking right next to it, thus startling or at the very least annoying you, how do you politely call this rude behavior out when one really wants to just yell, thanks, jerk? I think, you know, well, I mean, I think the answer is just a loud huff, right? Or Mm -hmm. I would also, I think Candace should not think that everything's about her. You know, because I don't know if it's that bad, <laughs> someone locking their door. Well, it's the sound. I think presence. it's the sound of beep, beep. Um, she, she thinks that maybe this person is aware that she's next to the car, but they don't care. They're not waiting. And they're for doing her. it on purpose. I guess so. And and so, like, the civil thing would be, like, wait for Candace to walk by the car and then beep it. I guess that's the... That's <laughs> what they would do on Downton Abbey, right? <laughs> yeah. Candace expects a lot. It's interesting. Candace seems like a bundle of fun. Yeah. I, got... I think the car lock alarm in Downton Abbey, too, is just three French horns. <laughs> it would be, yeah. It would be kind of a chamber <laughs> orchestra would play. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Candace, you got to give up your Victorian ways. Here's something from Confused and Messy in St. Paul. Confused and Messy writes, How does one eat a burger in public that is taller than it is wide? Using a fork and Uh, knife seems like cheating. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I've done this many times. I think you got to cut it in half. That's what you got to do. First of all, Mm. it's, you know, I hope if it's that tall that there's at least a fried egg on there so you've earned some of that height. <laughs> but It's not just uh, bun or something? Uh, yeah, or Brussels sprouts, Ugh. something weird on there. You know, oh. you can have avocado. I'm all right with that. But, like, don't put pulled pork on a burger. <laughs> you know, don't take, like, an entire entree and put it on there. Yeah. Like, yeah. like when they put pasta, you ever go into Zabarro's and they have, like, pasta on the pizza? Don't you want to just go, stop doing this, <laughs> yeah. right? Choose one. Just stop, all right? I know yeah. we're trying to make some money, but, like, let's just not do that. Yeah. Novelty right? stops at a certain point. Yeah. yeah. And so I think you cut it in half. I don't, yeah. I, I guess the thing is, she asked, is using a knife, fork and knife seems cheating. My question maybe is a more ontological. It's like, is it still a burger if you're using a fork and knife? Because I think that's almost mm. you're in steak frites territory. Oh if you my can't... gosh! I think if it's got the bun, it's a burger. Okay. But I think that using a fork and knife, 
I mean, that's just wrong. I mean, didn't that kill, like, John Kasich campaign? You know, isn't, isn't <laughs> oh, that why he's not the Republican nominee? I don't Certain, no, no, but de Blasio, the, the mayor of New oh, York, was de Blasio, using right. a fork and knife with pizza in New York. Oh, you're right. Just stay, yeah. If you're a politician, stay away from uh, forks and knives. So, but I do have to point out, to cut the thing in half, you are going to have to use a knife. So maybe just a knife, yeah, not are. a fork and a knife. Maybe the fork is the problem. Here. Yeah, Good. or just get a normal burger. Don't, you know. <laughs> yeah. Don't get an Empire State Building burger. That's right. That's my reference for tall. All right. So, so Enrico, just to clarify, if you're using the knife, you're still using your hand to carry the burger to your mouth. Yeah. Okay. It has to be carried to the mouth with a hand. With or a mechanical hand. You know what I mean? Some, there's that. I'm not against technology. Some sort of crane. Well, I'm sure Elon Musk is working on something, okay. right? I mean, he's got to be like, now you don't even have to move your arm. If Thanks, Elon Musk. If he's not, he is now. Yeah. Uh, Jim Gaffigan. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave and eat. Thanks, you guys. Jim Gaffigan. You can find his show, The Jim Gaffigan Show, on TV Land, and you can find TV Land in your cable box. And, folks, we can't help you find your cable box, but we can help you with your etiquette dilemmas. Mm-hmm. Just put them in an email and send them to us. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click Contact. Time to eavesdrop. Lately, there's been a flowering of fiction from Caribbean writers. Jamaican-born Marlon James won last year's Man Booker Prize. Now he's one of a chorus of voices singing the praises of his countrywoman, Nicole Dennis-Ben, and of her debut novel, Here Comes the Sun. Today we overhear a piece of it. We should note this five-minute story contains mentions of disturbing violence, sensitive listeners forewarned. Hi, my name is Nicole Dennis-Ben. And, you know, this novel touches on a lot of issues in Jamaica and particularly identity, sexuality, race and class. Most of these issues I've seen firsthand as an out lesbian woman. I wasn't out in Jamaica, but this scene resonated with me the most because of what you risk by being out. One of the characters is Verdine. And Verdine's internal conflict really is she claims a country that do not claim her. In fact, they fear her. This is her story. At the university in Kingston, on a chemistry scholarship, Verdine had been free from her nitpicking mother, who was far more concerned with how well Verdine could balance a book on her head, chew with her mouth closed, and speak without raising her voice. On campus, she was encouraged to have an opinion and form relationships outside her family's claustrophobic circle. The girls on the university's campus were highly affectionate. In the dorms, they combed each other's hair, lay in each other's beds, hugged up on each other during lunchtime and between classes, and sat in each other's laps. More than schoolmates, they were sisters. Verdine was closest to Akua, her roommate. Akua had a wide face and slow-moving eyes that could make people cry. But it was her smile, a dizzying white, that stole all the attention. Soon, Verdine learned that there was a thin line between sisterhood and something else she had no name for. She and Akua ended up crossing the line numerous times, taking things further than other girls. 
Their hugs became kisses and their gentle brushes became direct touches. To Verdine, their act was natural, a physical expression of how they felt about each other, the scorching love and cooling hate, the abysmal highs and outrageous lows. But to the university and to the resident hall director, Miss Rayner, who discovered them one late afternoon in the dorm, they were no different from witches warranting public execution. Seeing them in their loving embrace, Miss Rayner's face caved in as though a sinkhole were embedded at its center. The news spread like Canefield fire and made its way to her hometown riverbank. Verdine was disgraced, her mother shamed. The news hovered like dark soot for days, months, years. Her mother, Ella, never again left the house after she found out. More than the heartbreak and shame was Ella's guilt and loss. Ella had to send away her only child. She did it to save her life. Back in Riverbank, Verdine could have been raped or killed. If she were a man caught with another man, she would have been arrested, maimed, mutilated, and buried. So she was sent to live with her Aunt Gertrude in London. Verdine had boarded the plane with only her two long hands, no luggage. But when Akoa went home to Forrester, a town five miles from the university, she was beaten and gang-raped. Her body was found in the bushes, mauled and naked. She was barely breathing, but because of the shame she endured, she begged the Good Samaritan to leave her there and let her die. He refused and rushed her to the hospital. In a letter to Verdine many years later, Akoa included photographs of her four beautiful children and the policeman she married in the same church where she was an honorable member on the usher board and the women's ministry. She ended the letter with, May God be with you always. He works miracles. Verdine crushed it inside her fist. Cole Dennis Ben, her new novel is called Here Comes the Sun. And we're going to take a quick break, but in just a minute, we hear a new song from Cass McCombs, and author Emma Klein talks about the beauty and darkness of California. More trouble in paradise when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we speak with author Daryl Bullock about the worst opera singer in history. At last. And later, we'll hear a new track from Cass McCombs. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's Emma Klein. She is author of The Girls, the summer's hottest literary debut. The New York Times describes it as, quote, a seductive and arresting coming-of-age story told in sentences at times so finely wrought they could almost be worn as jewels. The novel's protagonist is Evie Boyd. She's an unremarkable middle-aged woman reminiscing about a summer back in the 1960s when she was 14 and got caught up in a Manson-like cult in Northern California, just as the hippie dream was shifting into a nightmare. Mm. When I spoke with Emma, I asked her why she said the book in the pretty well-documented world of Manson's California. Well, California, because I'm from California, 
Uh, so it really speaks to me as a setting for a novel, especially. And Northern California is such a weird little ecosystem, particularly. And in a lot of ways, it's still dealing with the 60s. So I liked writing a book that sort of interrogated the idealistic vision we have of what the 60s is. And I think the Manson family is a pretty good way to to undercut that yeah. peace and love. When you were researching it, was there something that surprised you, something that you didn't know about it? I guess for me, uh, what I was looking for in research uh, was more just little details that, that had some torque to them uh, where you'd read it and it would illuminate something. I, I guess what I always wanted to know more about was just day-to-day life. I think when you hear about a, an infamous crime or something, there's a way where everyone has the general movements in mind. Everyone knows what they are. But sort of the days leading up to it, before anybody knew what was happening, that's sort of what I wanted to think about more. Was there a detail in particular or like a story? It's not. It's even stuff just like what they ate or that they ate. They had to pass dishes in a certain direction, just things mm. which make no real sense. It's interesting. The, the food in your book seems <laughs> it's awful. It's horrible, right? Yeah, it's a lot of vegetable <laughs> mush. It's a, lot yeah. of, it's a lot of stew made from dumpster diving. Yeah. So this book is told by Evie Boyd. Uh, and she's kind of recounting her time with this cult. Why did you decide to have us tack from the present to the past? I always wanted an older narrator um, because to me what was most interesting is that tension between the past and the present. And especially nostalgia and the way we think about the past. And what would it mean if, if this one summer had maybe been the most important summer of your life? Sort of how would you... What story would you tell yourself for the rest of your life about what that had meant? And I think I'm also interested in the people who were peripherally involved in, in major events um, from the 60s and other eras and sort of uh, what that means to them in the present day. Evie had this time with this cult, and then her life after that was fairly unremarkable. Yeah. When, when we encounter her, she is living in a borrowed house. She doesn't have a lot of close connections and and it seems like Evie's only kind of allure is the fact that she did run up with this cult. Right. What's the what is the message there <laughs> as, as a reader? Well, I really wanted to push back against. I think we have this expectation in reading a book or seeing a movie that people will, you know, if if they undergo something horrible like being peripherally involved in this cult, that they'll learn something at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really like the idea of having a character who didn't learn anything and who actually maybe missed that time. Mm. And and just to have her not have there be no redemptive meaning necessarily mm. mm-hmm. that felt to me more true to how life operates often, which is these things happen to us and we struggle to make meaning out of them, but they never really hew to any sort of narrative line. You you grew up in California, yeah, and I'm guessing you were 27, so the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Good math. Very Thank quick you. math. I, I, I saw well, it in your I'm, ass. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I should have done it before I arrived here. There's a reason I work in radio and not in another field. Um, were there traces of this kind of dark 60s, 70s kind of California, Northern California that you encountered growing up that Definitely. made an impression on you? Um, and I think that's why I was drawn to writing about the 60s because you're still dealing with them um, yeah. in Northern California, Sonoma County especially. Like there's still sort of the remnants of communes and groups um, they have websites now. That might be the main difference. <laughs> They're selling hammocks online. I don't yeah. know. Uh, and then, you know, just all the people who moved there in the Back to the Land movement who then had children who are the people I grew up with. Um, yeah. So that's been interesting, I think, sort of navigating. I know acres of trees have fallen to write about this, but I'll, I'll ask you just as someone who lives there <laughs> as a writer and has written about this world. I mean, 
it's always such a contrast of this utopian kind of environment. And yeah, there's this underlying creepiness and darkness. Yeah. That is is unique to the kind of Western United States. Is it the people that it, it attracted? Is I think it... that's part of it for sure. Uh, I think it's, you know, in New York, especially I experience this every day. It's like you're surrounded by people. So you're constantly made aware of the social contract. And yeah. you sort of know to like wait to let everyone off the train. There's mm-hmm. all these ways which you understand what you're living with a group of people and you have to adjust your behavior accordingly. But in California, there's so many open spaces, you know, you could... I think it breeds a certain kind of craziness mm. or it attracts a certain kind of weirdo who wants freedom. Um, but then even the landscape, as you're saying, I think there's something – it's so beautiful. It's such yeah. unreal beauty. But it is like almost actively trying to kill you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's like earthquakes. Yeah, there's sharks in the water. Yeah, valley fever. Yeah. yeah, these beautiful beaches. People are always drowning. Yeah. Some guy in Bolinas, I think, just got bit. By a shark for the second time, you're like, dude, no more. <laughs> Give it up. <laughs> yeah. And for those who don't know, Bolinas is the little hippie town on the NorCal coast. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you a question about your prose. Uh, it is stunning, and I encourage people to go check it out, read the book. There's a reason it's popular. You use all these creative verbs and adjectives. You make these precise, spot-on observations. Does it ever surprise you how your writing comes out? Funny, because I never really thought of it as so different or um, not not usual. Uh, and I think a lot of it, or why I sort of was drawn to that style is from reading things that were out of my age range, you know? Mm. So you, you hear the way things sound, but you don't quite know what they mean. Mm. Uh, like I remember I, I was reading Cormac McCarthy and uh, I circled this word and I was like, this is a beautiful word. Wow, it's so evocative. And I was like, silent, the silent hills. Like, wow, silty hills, beautiful. <laughs> And then I, like, came across it a few years later, and I'd circled it so many times, and I was like, why? Silent. I just circled <laughs> the word silent. Uh, so I think it's, like, almost a slight glitch in mm. the brain. So cults have been popular in culture lately. You know, not actual cults, but in movies like Martha, Marcy, Mary Marlene, and musicians like Father John Misty. Why do you think that is? I don't know exactly. I mean, I wonder if it's like a, an enhanced desire for community because mm-hmm. things are so fragmented right now, mm-hmm. politically and socially. Um, but I'm not sure either. And I, I mean, they're interesting for artists, I think, because they operate in a lot of ways like families operate or sort of they're little microcosms of society. So I think that's interesting. For me, they're like hotbeds of hypocrisy, which I love writing mm. about, mm-hmm. um, especially coming from Northern California. That to me is like the <laughs> the little That's vein your, that that'll runs. be your life theme. <laughs> this grand idealism undermined by like petty humanity. Like, oh, we we want to group beyond racism. We're all about love. We're gonna create a new society, and then everyone's like, who's washing the dishes? <laughs> like, I love those two things together. It's a ludicrous combination. Emma Klein, her new book is called The Girls. And close listeners may have noticed that Brendan didn't ask Emma our two standard questions, but fear not, he did. Fear not. To hear her talk about her writing process and defend clamshell cell phones, head to dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, and 
now time for Chattering Class, in which we're schooled by an expert in some party-worthy topic. This week, our topic is the worst opera singer ever, and our expert <laughs> is a purveyor of fine bad music, author Daryl W. Bullock. Yes. He wrote The World's Worst Records, Volume 1 and 2, and his new book's a biography called Florence Foster Jenkins. <laughs> That's with increasing numbers of exclamation points after each name. Deservedly so. Florence was an eccentric and beloved New York socialite who, in the mid-1900s, insisted on singing opera classics stupendously badly. She became a local celebrity and eventually an international phenomenon. Next month, none other than Meryl Streep stars in a biopic about her. When I spoke to Daryl, I asked him to start by telling us a few of the reviews Florence's singing earned her. Well, there's certainly the famous Billboard uh, quote that says that uh, listening to her sounded like um, um, listening into a padded cell inmate. And um, there's also you know, many kind of references to the kind of hoots and screeches and swoops and, and everything else of her kind of vocal gymnastics, if you like. And somebody, I think, referred to her as the, the mistress of the sliding scale. Yeah, that's, <laughs> so, yeah, that's one, one of many. That's a great line, isn't it? The mistress of the sliding scale. Scale, but she um, she had a certain abandon about her when she performed. Should we say that? All right. Well, let's let's hear an example of this. We have a clip. This is her uh, singing something from the opera Deflator Mouse. Before we get to the singing, let's talk about a few of the things she actually did very well. She was a trained pianist. She was a trained pianist. She played piano for at least two presidents. She played at the White House twice. She she played and she sang in a choir at the White House. She was a very good pianist. And when she first moved to New York, she first performed as a pianist before she before she even thought about singing publicly. And then she inherited a, a huge fortune from her father and she became an arts patron. And I glean from your book, she actually had excellent taste in general. She was absolutely, she was a patron. She raised a lot of money for different causes, but she also used a lot of her own money to further the careers of other artists. Um, Toscanini is a very famous one. She she helped bankroll his performances. She was very, very into um, people like Verdi. She formed a club called the Verdi Club, specifically to promote his music in America. So, so she's a fine pianist. She's an arts patron with an amazing ear for talent. Why did she focus so intently on one of the few things she was not good at, which is singing? Well, there are different ideas about why this might have happened. My personal opinion is she probably could sing okay as part of a choir, certainly uh-huh. as part of a, cho- a chorale, which is um, where she first, how she first started performing in New York in the 1910s, 1911s. She was probably perfectly acceptable, but it's once she got out on her own, <laughs> yes. she really wasn't good enough. <laughs> she didn't have somebody else holding the pitch down for her. Well, exactly. It? But you've got an excerpt of a Time magazine review of one of her performances from 1934, and people were just rolling in the aisles. They were not holding back that this was hilarious. So there's ample evidence to her that she's not a good singer, and yet she soldiers on. Oh, no, absolutely. I think she was she was absolutely dedicated in what she did, and she was absolutely resolute uh, that she was going to do this no matter what, and she was very good at ignoring people who told her she wasn't very good. But is there a question in your mind whether she understood that she was funny to people? I think she knew that some people 
uh, took it as a joke. I don't think there's any question in that. She famously kept her clippings, her press cuttings. She knew for years before she died that people were coming to her shows, to her concerts, uh, most of which were given in very small venues and no need to select people. But she knew people were coming to laugh. I don't think she minded that much, to be honest. I think as long as there was um, friends around her that supported her, that believed in her, that would kind of give her the, the oomph she needed to get up and go, everybody else was kind of she didn't mind they were having fun they were enjoying something and i think also if you think about this um most of the performances we talk about we know about and the recordings that were made and all this kind of thing happened on the cusp of and during the second world war when you know people needed cheering up which is a wonderful thing to think people she gave people solace in some way how big a deal did she actually become how famous was she well she was only famous in new york because uh, unfortunately all the recordings she made were only available on kind of very limited uh, numbers and only pressed and sold around the new york uh, area so it's only after she died that she took on um, the cult of florence in the 1950s once her records were re- reissued by rca eight of the nine existent recordings on a on a 10 inch uh, album mm. it went straight into the classical charts in Billboard and stayed there for years. <laughs> the record has never been out of press. It's like the, the dark side of the moon of the classical Absolutely. world. Absolutely. That record, since 1954, has never been unavailable. It's always been there. And you, can you think of any other record in with the best part of 70 years is still available somewhere you can still go out and buy today? Do you think Florence Foster Jenkins was... It, obviously, we have many examples now of famously bad singers from reality TV shows, singing competitions, and we see the audition tapes. Was she the first famously bad singer ever? There are others. I mean, you can go right back to the beginning of the 1900s and you had a famous vaudeville act in the States called the Cherry Sisters who were just absolutely appalling. And and there are tons of newspaper reports about how bad their act was. Everything from vegetables to live chickens to a washing machine or a washing tub was thrown at them on stage because they were so awful. That seems hyperbolic, but let's continue. It, it, It does kind of, doesn't it? But the thing with Florence is she was the first to... Well, certainly one of the one of the earliest to record. Mm. She got it out there. She put it out there, and you've got to love her for doing that. Indeed. Um, you have a blog called World's Worst Records. I do. Where does Florence Foster Jenkins rank among them all? Well, this whole thing with writing the book started because I, I did an earlier book called The World's Worst Records, and I, I tried to do that in a, um, in a kind of chronological order. So she was the first person I, I, I mentioned. I think Florence's <laughs> recorded output is... Um, is amongst the best worst music ever. <laughs> you know, I love bad music, but it has to be something that's created by someone who's sincere. I'm, I'm not really into novelty music. I, I like stuff that's been created by someone who who really wanted to perform and produce and and create something that they thought was art. What's the appeal of that? It's well, it's funny certainly. It's very funny, but there's a there's a genuineness to it. There's a there's a real kind of heart there's an emotion behind good music and bad music there's, if there's emotion in it if there's a, a a genuine need to create then i think it's valid His new book on Florence Foster Jenkins is called, aptly, Florence Foster Jenkins. Jenkins! And with lots of exclamation points in that title. (laughs) And by the way, Daryl gave us a list of four other contenders for the title of Worst Album of All Time. You will find it on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org.
that's glorious. And that concludes the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. Next week, you'll hear from music dynamo Sharon Jones, among others. If you don't know her sound or her story, you're in for a treat. Till then, you can satisfy your ears with tons of back episodes from our podcast feed. To find them, just type Dinner Party Download into iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Jackson Musker produces this show. Our associate producer is Nina Patak. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Chris Clark engineered. Our interns are Danny Carmichael and Christian Coons. Our executive producer is Larissa Anderson. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to dig on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. And this time around, it comes from Cass McCombs, the modern-day troubadour whose songwriting has long been a favorite of other musicians. His new album called Mangy Love is out in August. Here's a track from it called Opposite House. Bon appétit. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for listening. It was a pleasure sharing the show with you today. Pleasure. That is a really beautiful word. Right? What it, what's it mean exactly? I don't know. I just read it somewhere. Hmm.